Let's pray. Father, we are coming to your word. We ask you to uh, open our eyes and lighten us to the greatness of the truths here. It's all about Jesus, and our text today makes that abundantly clear. So we ask you to focus our minds and our hearts on him, our Savior, and give him glory as we read the word together and study it. Just ask you for help in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of, one of the benefits of studying the Gospels like we do here, like verse by verse, is that when you come to the high points, the, the like, it's all great, but you, there are certain, when somebody like Matthew sits down to write the Gospel, he's taking you someplace, and you get to these places, and he just lays heavy key ideas on you, and um, if you're going verse by verse, when you come to those places, then everything you've been looking at before makes it even greater. I mean, you really get what he's doing, and that's kind of where we are today. Kind of has its full impact, if you will. So, you not only have the main point, you see how it fits in, and that adds to it. So, Matthew 16, 13 introduces a paragraph that is one of these high points in God's revelation to us. So, everything Matthew has shared is sort of leading us up to here, and it's kind of the center. It's like a really important spot. It's not a surprise. He's been saying things, and uh, he's been saying it and demonstrating it in hundreds of ways to get us to where we're going to arrive today. But now this greatest truth is revealed to Jesus' followers, his disciples, and us, of course, as we read. And this, so this is for us. Um, uh, the questions answered here are still the questions, I mean, capital the, the questions for mankind today. Nothing's changed with regard to that. It's the paramount question, the question that too often gets ignored when people talk about religion and church and Christianity and all that kind of stuff. I mean, if you talk about religion, it's pointless without answering this central question. And the central question of the text is, who is Jesus? Who is he? And if he is who the Bible says he is, he's everything. If he's not, you can go do something else. But if he is, he's everything. That's the central question. That's the one that has to be answered. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk with people about church and religion and morality and principles and this doctrine or that doctrine. But if I talk about that, I'm going to come right back to this central idea, who is Jesus? Because that is everything in answering all those other questions. It's the center. It's the center. Who is Jesus? And that's the question that Matthew's really been addressing from the first verse of this gospel. I mean, uh, just take note. Anybody that thinks the Bible's just a lot of fantastic stories or some kind of collection of tales for moral instruction is not coming to the Bible as a grown-up. It's not anything like that. It's a very carefully crafted work of art. It's, it's a masterpiece of literature. The Bible's a book for grown-up people. So if you read this thing, you're playing with the big boys. <laughs> You really are. It's, it's, it's a brilliant literature. It's not a collection of odds and ends. And he's building a case, and his case is based on evidence, and it's based largely on evidence that he's an eyewitness to, things he's actually seen and heard himself. And if, if you just flip back to chapter 1 real quick, I mean, he begins the case in chapter 1, which itself... Um, begins with a rather detailed genealogy. Now, advice for future book writers, do not begin with a genealogy. That's 
It's not a good way to start a book, generally speaking. Usually it's a terrible idea. But Matthew is writing to people who have been waiting for someone for like 2,000 years. And he's arrived, so the genealogy is like critical. But he doesn't just start with the genealogy. The first sentence lets you know why the genealogy is there. He says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So before he gets into the weeds of the genealogy, he, he brings out the two most important names. First he says, Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew's not like hiding his purpose. I'm telling you about Jesus, our Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, who's the son of Abraham, who were the original promises of God were made to, that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he's the son of David, to whom God promised one of his descendants would sit on the throne in Jerusalem over God's kingdom forever and it would never be taken away from him and he's that guy Jesus so his first words are a declaration of the man Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of the covenant promises to Abraham and David so he goes through the genealogy and then down at verse 16 it says Jacob was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah the Christ so, verse 1, he's the Messiah. Verse 16, he's the Messiah. It begins and ends that way. That bookends the genealogy, that declaration. And of course, the word Christ is just the Greek word for the Jewish word Messiah. So, Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah. Same thing, exactly the same thing. One's a Hebrew word, one's a Greek word. So, that's a pretty bold claim to start a book with. This guy, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. And he's writing to mainly Jewish people. So Matthew's not sneaking up to this. It's his thesis. Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew, what other evidence do you have to support this claim other than his genealogy? Well, he's got a whole lot of evidence. For one thing, there's this miraculous birth. He was born of a virgin, which is amazing, but you can't really prove it. But one thing you can prove, if you go look at the records, I mean, I'm thinking in Matthew's time, the people he's writing to, go look at the records and find out where Jesus was born. Where was he born? He's born in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah identified Bethlehem as the place that Messiah would be born. And you're thinking, well, a lot of people were born in Bethlehem. No! Bethlehem is a really tiny little hamlet. Really tiny. So how many people are born in Bethlehem? Not many. And the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. So that's very significant. Very few people. It could, it, the whole Messiah thing can be narrowed down to very, very few people. And Jesus is one of those people. Second, we have the evidence of his, his forerunner, John the Baptist, who was a recognized prophet by everyone. The first prophet in 400 years. And the way the Old Testament ends, it says God is going to send an Elijah to proclaim the coming of the one we're waiting for. He's going to prepare the way. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John says of Jesus, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's testimony, John the recognized prophet's testimony is that Jesus is far above him. 
The third bit of evidence we have comes from heaven. When Jesus was baptized, a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's pretty strong evidence if you were there. Fourth, we have the evidence of his life, his pure life. He was driven by the Holy Spirit into the desert in chapter 4, and he was tempted by Satan himself, and yet he was without sin. Then we have the evidence of his words, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. A sermon that even pagans recognize, even the most diehard atheist typically recognizes one of the greatest discourses on faith and morals in human history. I mean, it's an unsurpassed, brilliant discourse on morality and faith and all of those things. Even radical, radical skeptics acknowledge the wonder and the beauty and the deep teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And so you have to ask, well, if, if that didn't come from Jesus, where did it come from? Did a, did a couple of fishermen sit down and make that up? I mean, uh, where did that wisdom come from? Then we have the evidence of messianic power. See, I'm following Matthew, what he's been doing in his gospel, right? So this guy, Jesus, healed every kind of affliction, condition, disease, instantaneously. And he granted those powers to his disciples so they could do some of those things. He had power over nature. The wind and the sea obeyed him. He had power over death. He could bring people back to life from the dead. And as Matthew has shown us very recently in the text we've been looking at, he had the power of creation itself. He could take a little bit of bread and a couple of fish and feed 5,000 people just making food. So we have the evidence of all of those things. And as you kind of go along the way, there's another bit of evidence, and that's just the remarkable personality. There's nobody like Jesus, and, but there's nothing fake about him either. It's like, this is a compelling human being. He has a perfectly balanced personality. All of us are weird in some ways, you know? He wasn't weird. <laughs> he wasn't weird. He never, he never went off one way or the other way. And you can really see that in his, this is where we, we Christians usually blow it. Either we're really about holiness or we're really about compassion. And, and we usually kind of fall too far on one side of the other. The big challenge in a Christian life is to balance holiness and compassion. In other words, this is what's right and this is what we should do. And, you know, people are weak and they really need it. They need help. Jesus had, he was completely holy. He never compromised anything. Compassionate people tend to say, you know, yeah, it's not really the best, but it's okay. I love you, you know, here you are, and all that kind of stuff. And the, the holy people are like, you're just giving in to all kinds of sin, you know, you're compromising. And Jesus never compromised, ever, any, in the slightest way about what sin was, how horrible it is, what an offense to God it is, never compromised. And yet he was completely compassionate towards people caught up in sin. So that's the perfect person in every way. And nobody's quite like that. We all fail somewhere down there, but he never failed. He was perfect. We've also seen him in Matthew grant forgiveness of sins, which is something only God can do, offering pardon to people freely, authoritatively, as though he was the one. C.S. Lewis would say he does it like he's the one sinned against. Yeah, because he's, because he's God in human flesh. He is the one sinned against, but Matthew doesn't say it directly yet. He kind of lays that there for you to think about that. So in 15 or so chapters already in this one work, we've met Jesus and seen him in all these remarkable things. It's just a life 
too wonderful, too wise to have been invented. The words are too original and too compelling to have been put in his mouth, this character's mouth, by other people. So who is he? That's the question, right? And the disciples have started to uh, collect, they're starting to form their opinions about him, and Jesus um, is transitioning, we said, to a time of preparation of his disciples. That's where the book actually is, structurally. He's, he's moving out of this uh, theme that he's been on of, of Jesus being rejected, and now he's showing how Jesus is preparing his disciples. So, the disciples have to be trained to be ready when he's gone to spread the kingdom throughout the world, to preach the gospel. The salvation of mankind depends on them. And clearly, Israel is not accepting Jesus for who he is. The offer's been made. The king has um, brought them the kingdom. He's come to them. I am the kingdom. I'm the king, basically he's saying. And you need to embrace what I'm offering you. And they wouldn't do it, right? They don't want him because to have him means forsaking their pride, the religion that they've created, their sin, all of those things. So Jesus now is looking forward to the cross, that's his destiny, and he's got to prepare his men to be ready. So Peter, James, and John and the other guys have to be ready to advance the kingdom. So now is the time to start raising their vision with regard to who he really is to build their faith and to give them some really hard facts about what's coming. So that's where the, the gospel's going now. So he begins with a question to his disciples in verse 13 here that is intended to draw their minds to the popular view of who he is. Okay, so verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, they think you're Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they think he's John come back, or Elijah returning. Elijah never died, remember? Or Jeremiah risen from the dead or something like that. There's all kinds of speculation about him. Who is Jesus, right? That's the, now today, if you turned on the TV, they'd like... Uh, the latest Time Warner CNN poll shows that most people living in Judea and Galilee believe he's John the Baptist or Elijah. Nearly 30% choose John, while Elijah is close behind at 27%. Other prophets trail further behind in single digits. But Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, has found growing favor increasingly in recent polling. That's the kind of thing you'd probably get from this kind of deal, right? So, and you know what? Most people, you can tell from this list, most people thought Jesus was a true prophet. They really believed that. Like the prophets of old. So it's significant and very interesting that the perspective of the gospel writer here, Matthew, is that viewing Jesus as a prophet of God, a spokesman for God, is a form of rejection. You're not there yet. If that's what you think he is, you're not there. You're not where you need to be. So it's uh, really important that we get him right. Because he is a prophet, but he's very, very much more than a prophet. And it would be like, uh, it'd be like if the emperor of a great empire came and visited you, and you treated him like his herald or a servant, you know, and said, ah, good to meet you. We've got some servants' quarters are over there. You can sleep with them. <laughs> How would he take that, right? Uh, yeah, well, the, uh, you're, you're the spokesman. No, no, I'm him. 
you're missing it. So to call Jesus just a prophet is treating the emperor of the universe like a, a, a herald, you know, some kind of a flunky. That would be a horrendous faux pas if you did it um, in our world, and to say the least, it would be a horrible blasphemy to, to pull Christ down to that level. But that's what people are thinking, that's what they're seeing, that's how they're, and it's, it's logical, you know, um, but the gospel story is about the visitation of God as a man on earth. So Messiah is no earthly king, a, a mere man, made king by just a ceremony, which is all kings are, they're just regular people made king by some kind of a ceremony. This, we're talking about the creator of everything, becoming a human being, visiting creatures in their rebellion, seeking to restore them to himself in mercy. That's what the story is. That's who he is. So to treat him, the infinitely power, powerful and holy creator of all things, the one whose mercy we receive every day when we just breathe his air that he gave us and made for us, to treat him as like a mere messenger is to seriously miss what's happening here. But that's what the people of Israel thought about him. And it's, um, it's really as a king that they are not accepting him as, as the Messiah. So what is clear is that Jesus is the son of David, the promised king. That's what Matthew's saying. But that's the person they're rejecting. They're not accepting him as that. They're not thinking of him like that. And today, like when we live in our time, here we are 2,000 years later from there, um, we have to deal with Jesus as he really is too. We have to answer the same question. Because we have more information than they did. Much more. We've got the whole story. It's all played out. So we have to accept or reject him as God incarnate the creator, the king and the savior of the world. We have to accept that or reject that. So people who will not bow the knee to him in our time try to identify his, him in the same way as something less, as something manageable, something I don't have to bow my knee to, right? So many people seek him out as, and, and talk about him as a wise teacher or a world soul. I love that expression. I have no idea what it means, but... Um, people like to talk about that he's a world soul, you know, whatever that is. Or, or one prophet among many prophets. He's just one of the wise teachers of history. So if we reduce him like that, then we cannot pay attention to him. And we certainly don't have to bow our knee to him. We can ignore him. And that's what most people do. It is more understandable that people then who don't have a complete picture might see Jesus as a John the Baptist figure or a great prophet of some kind. I mean, Elijah was one of the great wonder workers of the Old Testament. He did more miracles, I think, than just about anybody in the Old Testament. So it's, and he never died. So it's really, it's natural, I think. It's actually a pretty logical conclusion to think maybe Jesus is Elijah. You know, because he's doing all these amazing things. I mean, Elijah was taken up into heaven. And he's supposed to re prepare Messiah's way. So to think, well, maybe he's, he's the Messiah because um, he said when Jesus came on the scene, he said the same words that John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how Jesus started his preaching. So that's a reasonable sort of conclusion, you know. Jeremiah, why Jeremiah of all the prophets? He mentions that here specifically. Well, he's the weeping prophet, right? The compassionate one, the tender-hearted prophet. So Jesus is kind of like that. You know, and so I, I can see where that, that lesser opinion, but that one, up and coming one, that, that made kind of sense. So at the time of our 
text here, there's a, a, an amazing whirl of opinion going on about who he is. But it's interesting that the one thing the disciples don't mention, they don't say, you know who they say, they, they, they say you are? They say you're the Christ. They, they don't mention that because most people aren't seeing that. It's not the common view. And that's understandable too because of what they were taught and what their expectations were. They were taught that the Messiah is a warrior king who comes and tramples the enemies of God and establishes his kingdom in this world and glorifies Israel and raises Israel up to be the premier nation of the, of the world. Jesus doesn't look like that. He doesn't carry a sword. He, his, his, his disciples aren't soldiers. They don't wear helmets. They don't carry swords. They don't do things like that. The Old Testament describes the Messiah as a warrior king like that. He's described in other ways too though and that was the problem they missed those other ways gentle he's described as a suffering servant Isaiah 53 he's described as a sacrifice in the Old Testament Daniel says his, he'll be cut off he'll be killed and yet other passages say he'll reign forever how do we put those together you know Matthew's starting to explain all that. But people often read scripture through the lens of what they want and that's what that generation of people did. They wanted, why would they want a warrior king? Because they're oppressed by the Roman Empire. They want freedom. They want to be themselves. They want to live their life without the yoke of Rome. They wanted political liberation. So their focus, and here's where the problem is, their focus was very much on this world on temporal blessings, on having their best life now. That's what they were into. And Jesus was saying that the spiritual life comes first. That's the most important thing. Each person and the whole nation must first be made right with God. They needed a new birth, personally a new birth. They needed to love God and live for God and become God-centered and obedient people. And a man with that message was not the Messiah they were waiting for. That's not who they were looking for. So they don't even come up with that as an answer when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They knew he was special. They knew he was a man from God. They knew he was a spokesman for God. Messiah? No, ill-suited. He's ill-suited for that. He's not violent. He's not a revolutionary type at all. He's not the man they want for that. He was a... He was a man of words and a man of wonders, but not a warrior like David, not a warrior. Remember in John chapter 6 when at one point one of the crowds wanted to make him king? John chapter 6, you remember that? Start the revolution now! And he, he turned them down cold. We totally rejected that and spoke of spiritual realities and they didn't want to hear that. So there's all these opinions about Jesus. The people had a variety of views about that. And, and Jesus asked the disciples what they think. Verse 15, and here's where it gets focused on them. Who do you say that I am? That's very important. That's what's bringing us to this crescendo of greatness here, this truth. Peter, not of himself, but actually prompted by the Holy Spirit, speaks right up in verse 16. You are the Christ the son of the living God. Wow. 
You're the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one we've been waiting for for centuries. And you're more than a man. You're not just the son of man, but the son of the living God. Where did that come from? That is what Jesus wanted to hear, and he recognizes immediately the work of God in Peter's heart. It's not something that any sinful creature can really figure out apart from God's grace. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's an important statement, very clear, maybe a surprising thing to say. Peter, you got it right, and that right answer did not come from you. (laughs) I was sure it was me. Peter heard no voice, he saw no vision, he had no superior wisdom, but this awareness, this conviction about the identity of Jesus as the son of the living God came to him from God. God gave it to him. It's quite a bit like what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, when he said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We don't have the ability to grasp what God is doing unless God opens us to it. He's got to open our minds and our hearts to it. He's got to make us see it. People have all sorts of opinions about Jesus, but when God graciously reveals to their minds and their hearts who he really is, that he's nothing less than God the Son, the very essence of the Father, the God-man, that's when the clouds clear away and the heart has understanding. Christ's divinity as well as his messiahship is the fruit of divine revelation given directly to the heart. That's how we come to believe. Christ's divinity as well as his messiahship is the fruit of God's revelation. So verse 17 is a description of what occurs when we come to faith in Christ. God is revealing Christ to us. We can see exactly here what Paul meant in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 when he says that faith is the gift of God. That's exactly what it is right here. And when it comes from God, it becomes personal for us, not merely a fact that we believe. Jesus isn't just the eternal God in human flesh. He's my God. He's not just the Savior of the world. He's my Savior. He's he's the righteous and holy King. He's the Lord, yes, but he becomes my King, my Lord. And that's what it means to be saved. When you come to that place, where you recognize that it's not just a true thing, it's true for you, you embrace it, that's what salvation is. So it's not a little thing, this is a huge matter, this great truth that God has revealed to Peter. It's so important, Jesus makes this really solemn pronouncement to Peter in the presence of all the disciples, verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. That's really something. Now those are very controversial words down through church history. We talked about them in great detail fairly recently on a Friday evening class we had. But um, there's a very large church centered sort of in Italy that 
teaches that this means that Peter was the first pope and this blessing was his and his alone except that he had the authority to pass it down to another man and that man could pass it to another man and to another man and those men are the vicars of Christ on earth the actual representation of Christ on earth standing in for him and he's the supreme pontiff the father, the head of the church the father of all who believe on earth and all of that comes from this text now is this is this really saying all of that? Well, no, it's actually saying almost none of that. It is saying some really important things, though. And so let's see if we can grasp what, what, it, what it's talking about here. There's two ideas here when Jesus speaks to Peter that, he, that Jesus presents based on this incredible confession of faith that Peter makes. A, a confession which did not come from him, but came from the Father. Keep that in mind. But Jesus talks about the rock and he talks about the keys. Now, ever since the Protestant Reformation, Protestants have argued that Peter himself is not the rock being talked about. And there's a pretty strong textual reason to to believe that right here in our text. Jesus himself seems to be making a play on words. He's, He's given Peter this nickname, Peter, Petros. So the Bible's written in Greek. The New Testament's written in Greek, right? And he's using two different versions of that word. Petros is a masculine word. You are Petros, Peter. But upon this Petra, which is a feminine version of that word rock, on this Petra I'm going to build my church. That's what the foundation of the church is. So that's feminine. Usually in in the Greek language this thing and this thing have to agree in gender. It's just like any romance language, like in German or some of those languages where if things are masculine, feminine, and neuter, they've got to agree. That's how you kind of know they belong together. So he's actually using a different um, gender for this. This word, when he talks about the second aspect of it there, that it's upon that, this rock, you're Peter rock, but on this, this lovely rock, this feminine rock, <laughs> I'm just using the word feminine so you see the difference there. It, it is in the feminine but um, I will build my church on this rock. So it's probably not him. And the Protestants always said, it's the confession. That's what the Petra is. That's the, that's the rock. And it's also true, and this is a little bit, things uh, kind of vary a little bit, but generally it's true that a Petras is a stone, like you pick up and throw at a dog, if you're mean, or the dog's biting you. But, um, but a Petra is usually like, a, a ledge, right? Like some massive formation of rock. Like we see some incredible, like go over to Vasquez Rocks and you go, look at that rock. That's, that's a Petra. Picking up a rock over there and skipping it around is, is uh, that's a Petras, generally speaking. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably though, so it's not an absolute thing, but that's generally true. So Peter's a little rock and the confession that he makes is everything. That's the ledge, that's the foundation rock that everything's going to be built on. I think that's correct. So um, I think the reformers were totally right about that just from the text itself and the language that is used. So what is the foundation that Christ is going to build the church on? On these words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the, found, that's the rock on which the church is going to be built. And the reformers did not invent that idea. I just want to say that. Like, the church always believed until then it was Peter. That's not true. The church often, great scholars and preachers of the ancient church 
often pointed to the confession of Peter as the rock because they could read Greek. They knew what, what the difference was. Classic one is uh, John Chrysostom. Chrysostom means the golden mouth. That was a name they gave him. Gave him. He was the bishop of Constantinople, which, which was the capital of the Eastern Empire, Roman Empire. I mean, he was a really important guy. And, he, and we have a lot of his sermons because they wrote them down. And he did a whole thing on Matthew. You can read him today. And he, when he came to this passage, he said... Um, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That is, on the faith of his confession. So he believed that back, this is a fourth century guy. So uh, way back then. So long before the reformers. But the reformers would have read him and said, yeah, he's got it right there. So his whole point is to affirm the deity of Christ, and that's the foundation is Peter's confession recognizes Jesus not just as the Messiah, a warrior king, but as the son of the living God as well. So he was exemplifying the rock on which the church is built, confessing Christ as God. Now, you can make an argument, like I said, that Petra and Petra, and there's an argument that the Roman Catholic Church makes that um, if they were speaking Aramaic, the, the words rock, rock and rock would be the same. But we don't know what they were speaking and the Bible was written in this language and this is the one we got. So uh, this is what we have to study and work out of. So I don't think that's very compelling. But let's say, let's say Peter is the Petra. Maybe he is. Maybe, maybe that is a right way to look at it. Um, that does not mean he's the supreme head of the church and he passes down that authority to everybody he picks down through the ages because the Bible doesn't teach that. But Peter definitely is the first, the most prominent of the twelve early on. No question about it. Peter is special. And, and I think Jesus is, when he talks about the keys, we're getting to that. We're, we're talking about this other area. He is kind of giving Peter a first place status uh, among the apostles for this confession, which he didn't come up with himself that God gave him, but he's still um, blessing Peter in a sense with this. Um, you know, Paul said, no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And Peter did lay that foundation, historically speaking, by preaching Christ as the Son of the living God. I mean, Peter's really, if you look at the book of Acts, the story that follows the story of Jesus, the first 12 chapters are mainly about Peter, except for chapter 6 and 7. They're mainly about Peter. His name's used over 50 times. All the major events seem to be centered around him. Uh, Peter's the one who said, hey, we've got to replace this Judas. We lost Judas. He hung himself, so we've got to get a new guy. Now, did he pick the new guy? No. No, he didn't have that authority, but he did suggest it, so that was important. But the main thing is, the first great gospel sermon preached was on the day of Pentecost, right? And who preached it? Peter. In fact, that's why we reenact that at the Vasquez Rocks service, because the gospel's in that sermon, so we have a guy preach that sermon for Peter, as Peter. It's a great sermon. 3,000 people. So the church went from about 100 people to 3,100 people like right away because of Peter's preaching that sermon. That's how the church began. And Peter preached that same gospel to the Gentiles in what's called the second Pentecost in Acts chapter 10 at the house of a Gentile Roman soldier named Cornelius. And that miracle story I read earlier in the service from Acts chapter 3, that led to another great sermon in which thousands, thousands more people joined the church. In Acts chapter 4, 4, it says that. So he was the chief spokesman 
for the gospel early on. And when they dragged them before the Sanhedrin, the, the council, and were going to punish them, Peter was the spokesman for the twelve. So there's no question that among the twelve, Peter was a first among equals, if you want to use language like that. But it's also true that after chapter 12 in the book of Acts, who's the star? Paul, totally, right? It's all about Paul. In fact, Paul is way more influential than Peter after Peter lays that foundation because Paul's the one that takes the gospel to the world and starts planting churches throughout the world. If 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 it had been up to Peter, it would have pretty much stayed where it was. But Paul took the gospel everywhere to the Gentile kingdoms of the world. And Peter kind of followed him, but Peter was not the initiator of all that work. That's why the book of Acts shifts pretty early from the Jerusalem, Palestine area to the rest of the world through Paul. So, as far as the rock is concerned, it's perfectly reasonable to say that the rock on which the church is built is the confession that Jesus is the son of the living God. That's what I believe. It's possible that the rock is Peter. You could make that argument in some ways because of the prominent role he played in the early church. None of those ideas, though, supports the idea of a succession of popes or some kind of super authority that Peter had over other people. Because I want to get to this next part here. This, um, well, for one thing, Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So we're promised there that the true church cannot die, that as bad as things get, and boy, have things gotten bad down through history, and they're getting bad again for the church. Our efforts will succeed. We're going to talk about that verse next week. But let's talk about the keys, because that is something Jesus does say to Peter directly, and that's why I think walking through how important Peter was in the early church is pretty important for this, these texts, because those words are said to him personally and directly. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's, that's a lot of power. But what does it mean? The keys of the kingdom of heaven. So keys do what? They get you into places, right? They open doors. So to get into the kingdom of heaven, or to open the door to heaven, Jesus is giving Peter the key. Why, what, why Peter? Because he just said, the thing you have to know to get into heaven that God revealed to him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you don't understand that and grasp Christ as that by faith, you can't get into heaven. So that's the key. Those are the keys. The keys suggest access and authority, and Peter's given the commission to preach the gospel that opens those doors for men and women to enter in as they respond to that great truth. So in proclaiming the gospel, which is founded on Peter's confession... Anybody that shares Christ or preaches Christ has an authoritative message from God. And the acceptance or rejection of that message determines whether or not people will be bound in their sin, it'll be held on to them, or if they'll be set free from that sin. The, The keys will unlock the burden they bear, the condemnation they bear, and they can be set free by the blood of Christ. And it's Peter who gives that first gospel message on the day of Pentecost. So he gave those people the key to the kingdom of heaven by preaching the gospel to them. That's laying the foundation for the church. And it was Peter who God arranged to cross the cultural divide first and speak to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. He brought the key to a Gentile. He's the first one to do that. And so that was very significant. That's laying the foundation for the church as well. So two events 
to build on. Two great events with Peter taking center stage. Does that make him a pope? No, no, it doesn't. Absolutely not. Let's, let's answer that claim just by, there's a lot of text we can bring to bear on that, but since we have extremely limited time, um, let me just move through, take you up to Matthew chapter 18 real quick. Just flip a page and go to Matthew chapter 18. And look at verse 1 there. It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the, now they were always arguing about that, right? And Luke 22, even at the last supper they're arguing about that. Can you imagine that? The last supper, Jesus is grieving, he's going to go to the cross. And I think Peter's the best. Well, clearly John is better than Peter, right? What about me, Thomas? I mean, I'm rather, rather wonderful. I don't know how they had those discussions, but it's, uh, that's what it says they were doing. But anyway, so they asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if this Pope thing is real, then Jesus would have said what? Because this is after chapter 16, right? Boys, who's the rock? That's what he would have said, right? Who did I give the keys to? Eh? Huh? Peter, man, say it with me now. Peter, Peter, John, tell me it. Peter. Peter. That's what would have happened. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. In answer to the question, who is the greatest, Jesus does not give a name. He gives a standard. So, chapter 18, verse 2. He called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest is the most humble. That's what he teaches them. In Luke, he tells them that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. He doesn't name names. He just tells you what that person is like. Then... Skip down a little farther to verse 15. He talks about binding and loosing, which is the power he gave to Peter in chapter 16. But now he's giving it to every church, every, every local church. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So he's just describing how his church is going to deal with unrepentant sin in, in, it, in the members, among the members. And so now the binding and loosing authority is given to the whole church here. And any local body of believers has this authority. You know, it's not unique to Peter. Anyone who preaches the gospel has the keys. And any local body of believers, any church has the authority to bind and to loose with regard to un unrepentant sin. But Peter was the first. Peter was the first. It was his declaration which God revealed to him. That's the foundation for all of this about what the church is and has become. It's, so the center of everything is what? Peter. No. The center of everything is, the, is Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the son of the living God. So it's not about ethics or morals, except 
that he is moral. Christianity is not about works of mercy and doing good deeds, except as he is the model of mercy and good deeds. Christianity is not about having the good life, except as he is the source of comfort and peace for our hearts in a fallen and broken world. It is about reconciliation with God because only he achieved reconciliation with God through his death on the cross and his resurrection. So God personally undertook as a human being to pay the sinner's debt to divine justice and set us free from the shackles of our sin. That's what he did. So Christianity is about Christ and that's why Christians emphasize a relationship with him as opposed to to just belief, a mere religious sort of confession about, oh, I think this thing is true. If it's not true to you, for you, it's not true at all in your life. So God, God is not a, a power to be appeased or, or a force to be manipulated by prayers or anything like that. He's a person. Christ is a person. He's a king, a king to be served. He's a savior to be adored because he lives. He's the very source of your existence on this earth as a human being, as the creator, and he's the only chance you have to be restored to God because you're wicked. And he's the savior. He's the only savior God provided. Very important that you understand that. And since nothing is higher than him, nothing even approaches being as high as he is since he's the maker of all things, and since he is worthy of all honor, there is no thing you can do in your life that's more right than for you to love him with all your heart. That's the most right thing you can do. There's nothing more important than that. So do the right thing. Well, we spent a lot of time on the Peter thing here, and I've really just scratched the surface of that Matthew 16 text, so we're going to come back to it to next week. I think it's a perfect Easter message, actually. Um, I will build my church, and um, Christ is the Son of the living God. So we'll look at that more next time. Let's pray. Our great Father, if you had not revealed to Peter who Jesus really is, we would not have known. So we are blessed by that. We are so blind and dull because of our sin that we don't grasp eternal truths. We miss what you're doing. We miss what you have done. But you're so good and you're so full of compassion, you open our eyes and you open our hearts to the glory of Christ, God incarnate, your own Son, revealed to us by your gracious power. We thank you for that. Keep our focus on him by your sustaining grace, and we pray in his name. Amen.